Hello, and welcome back to Lots of Planets of the North, a Northern Doctor Who podcast. I'm Kira. I'm still Bethan. And I'm Jacob. <laughs> uh, and you join us for the second part of our discussion of Series 1. So let's jump straight into it and go to the Aliens of London World War Three two-parter. It's probably worth mentioning at this point, by the way. Um, uh, in general, we will be treating two-parters as a single episode. There will probably be exceptions to that going forward, but certainly for this series at least, um, that's the way we're doing it. I can't tell her. I can't even begin. She's never going to forgive me. And I missed a year. Was it good? Middling. It's so useless. Well, if it's this much trouble, are you going to stay here now? I don't know. I can't do that to her again, though. Well, she's not coming with us. I don't do families. Yeah, so for my introduction to my thoughts on this episode slash episodes, I'm just going to read to you from the sacred texts, which is my notes that I have before me that have been alluded to already. (laughs) So here goes. Is Rose 19 or 20? Question mark, question mark. Do Slitheens fuck? Don't hate Mickey, my son, my boy, my sweet child. I should point out that fuck is in uh, capital letters and underlined. I had hoped to convey that with like the tone, but thank you. And then, better than I remembered. <laughs> <laughs> and make of that. Well, I'll 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 elaborate a little bit, but like, go on, Jacob, go forth. <laughs> This is another episode that I'm not particularly keen on. It will surprise no one. There's some clear attempt at satire, uh, which I'll go into later on. It doesn't really work. I don't like all the fart jokes. Uh, I think I think it's just a bit ridiculous. I, I don't really have very much to say about it, to be honest, beyond I'm not very keen on it. I think it veers, and I'll go into this again, it veers into conspiracy theory territory in some mm. areas mm, yeah and that's a problem possibly yeah i <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean this is this is an episode certain more so than any other part of series one this is the episode that has come down to us as like the skippable one basically it's kind of it's seen as being very lightweight as being tonally weird and it is Basically, it's also, it's kind of, it, I think partly because it's the series' first run, uh, it's Davies' first run at two-parter, the pacing's quite weird. Mm. Um, it's got, it tries to do a cliffhanger, but it does that really bad cliffhanger thing of, like, suddenly inventing a, a threat, and then it turns out that everything's just fine. The Doctor can just kind of shrug off that, th- that threat. It has to, like, do the thing of introducing uh, a substance that can just kill the, the monsters, uh, which I've never particularly liked. Mm. And it's just the the beats are slightly off and that kind of thing. I'm Obviously, there will be better two-parters. There are better two-parters in this very series. But I think it shows that this is the first run at one. The pacing, I think, has generally been good in the episodes that we've seen so far. But here, it really falls flat. I want to start by looking at one of the things that this, this episode does. One of the things that I really kind of adds to Doctor Who mythology as it were. Which is and kind of picking up from some of what we were talking about with Rose and I, in fact some of the links that we were drawing between that and survival. This is the episode more than any other that grounds the series as it were. That 
gives us the context of the companion's family and friends. The context of the people who are left behind when you go running off in the TARDIS. And that's something that the Davies era is quite concerned with by giving us the families of all of the all of the companions. And but this is really where it starts. And it starts as a critique of the Doctor, really. As a, a critique of the Doctor's lifestyle. You could argue a critique of Rose, but uh, I think that's probably a little bit unfair because, you know, Rose was offered the opportunity to travel through time and it's not her fault that she got brought back to not when she was supposed to. It wasn't, the service wasn't as advertised. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's true. (laughs) But yeah, I think that's a, it's hard to overstate how big um, an addition to the series that is. And obviously, as I say, it is slightly grounded in survival. Survival is the first time, really, that the show goes back and looks at where a companion is from. And if you believe some of what's said about the massive quotation marks, Carpmel master plan, that might have been expanded on in, uh, in mm. had mm. season 27 come to be. Mm. But certainly, I think, as, as we'll see, actually, in some of the episodes coming up, this series is almost a reply to the Carmel era in some ways. And I think that's really one of the the lessons that it's carrying forward. Um and it's one of its most pointed responses to the the classic um series. Mm-hmm. And one of the most pointed ways in which it builds on what has gone before. It's interesting that you mentioned about that this may have been possibly where the quote Carmel Mass plan would have gone. Because um you're right, you get that there's that sort of rootedness again, and it's almost... I think Elizabeth Sandifer says this about Rose. She says a, a lot about Rose. She does say a lot about Rose. But it's, it's going into the, the realm of soap opera, you know, when, she, yeah. when Jackie slaps the Doctor. I mean, it's very much that kind of, that kind of area. And um, I think that's interesting if you're talking about continuity, because one of the people who was possibly going to be script editor after Andrew Cartmel was Colin Brake, who at the time was a script editor for EastEnders. Okay. So it may well... Not necessarily. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go in a soap opera direction, but it may well have done. But yeah, that's all I'd say about that. (laughs) I mean, that's also one of the things that John Nathan Turner originally wanted to bring to the show, Mm. uh, a concept of soap opera. Uh, He didn't succeed very well. In the notion of there... I think the, the most obvious way in which it... Uh, that idea manifested is the notion of there being drama between the TARDIS team in season 19, which most, it's mostly just Adric being a little shit. Yeah. Um, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> so this is definitely moving beyond that. I think that I do like the fact, I actually quite like the fact that we get some of Rose's fam- family in like her sort of social group. I... One, what was alluded to in my notes was that I don't like the fact that they keep calling Mick, that the doctor keeps calling Mickey an idiot, and like mm. maybe he's stressed because of the time war. But I still feel like it's really harsh, and maybe it's just because I really like Mickey though. He is a bit mm. like he's he's not like leveled up at this point in the <laughs> series. He's still just kind of like a boy from London who yeah. wants to watch the football. But like that's that's admirable. Mm. And some of the other stuff he does is admirable as well. Some of it is less so. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily think this is intentional, but the fact that he is a black working class character and he's treated as stupid and portrayed as stupid is a little bit dodgy. 
just just saying. <laughs> I yeah. guess considering he's like the only sort of yeah cast main cast member who's a person of color yeah. at this mm-hmm. point, it's yeah. a bit like yeah. That's what concerned me a little bit looking back on it. Yeah, but I don't think that was intentional. No. Uh, yeah, it's it's weird because like um, going forward, even by the time really by the end of World War Three, certainly by the time of Boomtown, um, Mickey the Idiot has become the Doctor's affectionate nickname for him. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. So and I like I I don't think he's necessarily portrayed as particularly stupid. It's just that the, the Doctor regards him that way. Yeah, mm. I think that that's like the thing he's sort of yeah. seen as like the secondary compared to Rose. Yeah. But then he probably also sees Jackie that way. He's just too scared to tell it to her face. <laughs> Which there. So, <laughs> I don't know. I think, I just feel like it was a bit weird watching it now quite how much that he calls Mickey yeah, an idiot yeah. these two episodes. It, it's, it is jarring. I think it's, I think it's overdone. But, yeah. um, I don't, like, I, I still enjoy his participation in the episode yeah. a lot and Jackie and everyone. I mean, yeah. I should should I elaborate on some more of my comments because I feel like there's, there's one, one that particular, needs. Yeah. So there's this bit that's like been really troubling me where they're in the like the cabinet room and like one of the Slitheen boys is like, mm. I rather enjoyed being previous skin suit. He had a wife, a mistress, and a young farmer. I was very. He was something. Like I was very busy. And so, obviously, like, when I first watched it, I was like, what? And now I was watching it now, and I was like, oh, my gosh. What on earth? Is that even ha- I don't want to... Why did they build that capability into the skin suits? <laughs> Why did Russell T. Davis establish this as part of the Slitheen-verse canon? <laughs> Real so down. I think that, like... So I think that that kind of, like... It says something to me about the way that the Slitheen are, like, kind of weirdly conceived in that, like, mm. there are a lot of sort of jokes thrown together, but then they're also supposed to be, like, a credible new series monster. Yeah. And the reason why this episode I said wasn't as bad as I remembered is because a lot of the stuff that I remembered being particularly bad about the Slitheen is actually in Boomtown. However, there is still all the stuff of, like, fart jokes mm. and, like, oh, it's only fat people can be skin suits yeah. because reasons we can compress but not fully blah 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 and like it's just a bit i don't really know what they were going for mm. but clearly mm. from a lot of like the merch that you can get from around this time in doctor who they like genuinely believed that the Slitheen were going to be like well, maybe not a phenomenon, but at least, like, something that people were interested in. Mm. And I just feel like they never really, like, captured people's imaginations in the way that... I mean, in this series, in the way that, like, the gas mask people did. Because that's yeah, the thing yeah, that... Actually. That's the new yeah, monster yeah. in this series that yeah. people... That really spoke to people. Mm. And I just feel like they threw so much weird stuff at the Slitheen. They couldn't decide whether they wanted them to be funny or, like, what... Yeah. Ever. They're very over-signified as... As monsters. Mm. Mm. They've got so much going on. I wonder if maybe they had some sort of idea that the unzipping the skin was going to be, like, too scary, so they had to also make them funny to small children with, like, farts and stuff. But, like, I don't think that... If that is the reasoning, which is the only thing I've been able to come up with, then I think that that's quite silly, because I think that the way to produce, like, good entertainment for children is just to produce 
good entertainment, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. in a format that can also be enjoyed yeah. by children. I don't know if it's something to do with trying to. I don't know if it was. It was. It was an attempt to try and merge satire and the alien element mm. together mm. better, but it doesn't really work because satire is one particular kind of humour. Yeah. In this one, I think is it just doesn't it doesn't work anyway. But but then you have all the other kind of quite immature like fart jokes and things which are a completely different type of humour and they just go past each other mm. um, it, it, yeah it's just it's incoherent doesn't doesn't work for me at all also it's like I really can't answer the question of why did it have to be that the Slitheen had to be fat people because yeah. they have a weird like practical yeah. reason for it yeah, which yeah. is like oh they can shrink one way but not the other way mm. but then I don't understand like what the like why that was a thing I don't understand why they decided that that should be a thing in the first place, if that makes sense. Mm. Like, is it because it's supposed to be funny? Is it supposed to be inspiring fear in the everyday (laughs) by, like, Mm. making children scared of fat people? And they're not, like, the actors that play them, like, aren't even, they're not that. Like, they're, like, they're, they're, they're fat, but they're, like, normal size. Yeah. Like, Mm. they didn't go, like, grotesque like Mr. Creosote in like Meaning of Life or anything Mm. so not that that would have been okay Mm. I still think that like Mm. it's a weird and gross decision but it just seems like a weird element that like I can't pin down to anything yeah as why it would be a thing yeah no I mean I think uh, we should dig down actually into the the satirical elements a bit because (laughs) (laughs) Jacob like (laughs) pumps himself up um but because this is this is where one of the davies signatures um starts to make itself felt which is the well we kind of already alluded to this a little bit with rose but the the series being set in a kind of recognizable contemporary mm. world mm. so here there's a weird bit early on where the um the doctor and the doctor's kind of elbowing his way through a crowd and someone near him says something about ken livingston Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's something like there's a traffic jam, isn't there? They go, it's all Ken Livingston's fault. <laughs> yeah, which given that, like in general, most of the other politicians here are meant to be are fictional, it's a really weird thing. Mm. One possible exception, but we'll get to that. I mean, the the other one that jumps out to me is the fact that it's the the use of the TV news, which is a big daily signature, and the fact that in this instance they've got they've got Andrew Marr outside Ten Downing Street, which is not really something Andrew Marr does. Mm. Yeah, my, I don't know if it even was. I don't know if he did really. it at the time. I can't yeah. remember now. But yeah, um, I actually think to be fair, is one of the. There's a quite a few instances of like real people popping up on the news in mm. Davies. Andrew Marr, I think, works where Richard Dawkins, for instance, doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> I think that. Um, I think that I actually. <laughs> One of the things that I actually quite like about these episodes is the Andrew Marr thing, just yeah. because mm-hmm. I think that he does like a really good job of like playing himself, kind of. <laughs> yeah. And it's quite. It is quite funny, and yeah. that's maybe like the only element of it that like really fully works. So props to Andrew Marr, I guess. <laughs> it, it reminds me a little bit, in a weird way, of the episode of The Thick of It, where one of the characters appears on um, Newsnight and is grilled by Jeremy Paxman. And it's just a beautiful moment of Jeremy Paxman playing himself perfectly. <laughs> but this anyway. is kind of like Doctor Who does the thick of it mm. badly, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I, I, mean, I, think, <laughs> I think if we're, if we're like you were saying, going to kind of unpack the satirical stuff more, mm-hmm. 
I think this, and I'm going to come back to this. I keep saying I'm going to come back to this. I'm going to come back to this when we get to the long game and Bad Wolf and the Parting of the Ways. <laughs> but this is really indicative of something that runs throughout the first series, which is a deep, deep scepticism and suspicion of politicians and the ability to make political change. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you, you can you can see that in the fact that you know they're they're clearly all duplicitous because they're in, they're actually aliens in suits. <laughs> yeah. They're out to make a profit. That's that's what the whole plan is about. You know, they want to reduce the earth to molten whatever and yeah. sell it. Yeah, I think you can you can see all that scepticism there and the fact that they fake the whole crash in the spaceship and mm. they fake the alien pig. I think really if you're looking at that in context, it all relates to Iraq and yeah. Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, and not subtly at all. No. I mean, there is one point at which the acting PM, who is a Slovene, says, and I have the quote, they've found massive weapons of destruction capable of being deployed within 45 seconds, mm. which is remarkably similar to what Blair and Bush said. Almost word for word. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I think you can see the fact that there is clearly this concern permeating the series of a distrust in politicians that becomes apparent after that lie to be mm. frank about weapons of mass destruction mm. but it doesn't i don't really think it goes anywhere with it what i think it does do is in employing this image of green aliens in suits is that it mm. goes very close to conspiracy theory Specifically, I'm thinking, and we brought him up last episode, and he's back again. <laughs> yeah. David Icke and his idea that the royal family and Tony Blair and all kinds of other people are actually lizards in suits. Mm. I think that's I think that's a general thing. I don't yeah. really know. But um, I, th- I think there's a tension there in the story with the fact that the, the kind of lie about weapons of mass destruction is something that is based in the political reality of the time and was actually it was a sort of conspiracy that was that you know that, that was actually true and yet here it's being put alongside these symbols of a conspiracy theory from David Icke that is deeply problematic mm. doesn't work at all you know isn't isn't true and you know David Icke is someone who said some pretty dreadful things and his conspiracy theories go in pretty dreadful directions hmm. so I, I think there is a real problem there maybe that's just an issue with sci-fi in general but yeah I think that is a problem I feel like maybe they and by they I guess I mean Russell T Davis that he just like didn't think through the implications and did the yeah. kind of satire yeah. which is essentially like a similar kind of I guess satire or humour as we're going to see yeah. in Bad Wolf where it's like here is Thing you recognise thing, therefore humour slash satire, but he's doing that with the like mm. Mm. the references to Iraq. Yeah. Mm. But like then he's not really doing I don't think it's like I, I don't yeah. think he was trying to do a fully like build it up drill yeah. down into yeah, it. Yeah. But I think that what you're saying is which is like correct is that the disparate elements that he then puts around that kind yeah. of make it build a a weird and uncomfortable picture as, mm. as when taken as a whole, mm. Mm. which is like the, one of the many failings of doing this kind of like humor, which is just recognition. Like there isn't yeah. really a joke. Yeah. 
Hmm. I think there's there's the other interesting thing is there's an element within this episode that could absolutely have rescued it. That could even like within the episode itself seems to cut through the cynicism, mm. which is Harriet Jones. Yeah. But Harriet Jones is mm-hmm. like an MP who genuinely wants to represent her constituents and uh, who seems like a, uh, a genuinely decent person. At the end of the episode, the doctor's talking about how she's going to be this great PM yeah. uh, who will lead Britain through a golden age. <laughs> yeah. The next time we see her... It's all deconstructed. Yeah, yeah. completely. Yeah. Which is, I have many, many problems with mm. that in mm. Christmas Invasion, but we'll get to that at some point, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, so the show seems to be really working against itself there. Mm. And I know, I know she does turn up again in um, Stolen Earth Journey's End and gets a kind of redemption there. Yeah. But it's a redemption that is divorced from her status mm-hmm. as an elected mm-hmm. representative. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it kind of, it doesn't work on that level. I think it's, again, it's it's symptomatic of the kind of betrayal many people, including me, feel about New Labour, who were in power at the time. Mm. You know, I think a lot of people thought that they would be more redistributive than they were. They took on large portions of Thatcherism and the one of the worst things they did out of everything was this lie about weapons of mass destruction and the mess that then ensued. And I think I get the feeling that that's where a lot of the scepticism and cynicism about about creating any kind of political change. And in fact, just scepticism at the idea that there is any principled politician anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's where it comes from. Yeah. I mean, from that point of view, we can't we can't ignore the fact that this episode kills Tony Blair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. the yeah. Prime Minister, as everyone refers to him. <laughs> yeah. The Prime Minister. Which is the way that nobody actually would refer. <laughs> no. Because it's quite funny, because when they do that in, like, American shows and they say Mr. President, that is kind of a way that, like, yeah. people in the US refer to mm. the President. But, like, nobody would say, no. are you here to see the Prime Minister at, yeah. like, the Prime Minister's house or something? But, yeah, like, it... Sorry, that was kind of like a side thing, but I just find it really funny when yeah. shows do that. Yeah, no, because but that is part of the point because it it indulges in this kind of pointed, plausible deniability. Basically, there's a, a couple of shots where you can see uh, the stairs of Number Ten, where you've got like portraits of prime ministers, and it goes like Thatcher, mm. Major, mm. and then a blank space, and then there's the fact that the body that's found in the uh, in the cupboard of the former prime minister looks quite like Tony Blair. The camera yeah. pointedly never focuses on it, mm. but it does look like him. Mm. And so I, it's it's hard to know what to make of that because on the one hand, there you, you can see it as this kind of gleefully anarchic poking fun at a clearly despised political figure, understandably despised mm. political figure. But there's a nasty edge to that as yeah. well. Yeah. Like, it's a, it's, a, it's a dodgy as hell thing to like... Mm kill the prime minister it's also like because like yeah. the slovena bad yeah so it's like oh he's dead and now this is what you get instead yeah so it's not yeah. really like opening up the idea that there yeah. is anybody hmm. apart it's from harriet jones yeah. but like the golden hmm. age thing is weird when did that happen yeah. i must yeah. have missed that but <laughs> yeah, it, it does it just plays into that pessimism again because like you've already had this 
figure who supposedly probably is Tony Blair has mm. been killed off. He was supposed to be terrible. Then you let me say the Sardine come in, they're terrible. And then Harriet Jones, who's supposed to be good, she ends up being terrible as well. Mm. And it creates this almost like eternal recurrence. Oh, and uh, Harold, Harold Saxon. <laughs> yeah. And Harold Saxon, yeah. He seemed like such yeah. a nice guy. I don't know yeah. what went wrong there. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, it's all a bit yeah. of a blur, to be honest. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll come, I'm going to come back to this. And the theoretical implications of this later on mm. in, other, in other episodes. But, it, yeah. It's a real issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think with that, we need to move on to Dalek. Yay! All right, then. If you want orders, follow this one. Kill yourself. The Daleks must survive! The Daleks have failed! Why don't you finish the job and make the Daleks extinct? Rid the universe of your filth! Why don't you just die?! You would make a good Dalek. Jacob is making panicked motions, but yeah. like also excited in a good way. In a good way. way. <laughs> um, do you want to start us off on this? Actually, just for your general impression of this episode. Okay. Just like go for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think it's great. I think this is Eccleston's probably best performance of the season, hmm. uh, which yeah, which which is. All of his stuff in Doctor Who, yeah, I think it's one of his best performances because the, the script gives him so much to do and mm. so many, you know, it reveals more about the character. I think the way, the Daleks' return is handled really, really well. Mm-hmm. The way in which it's kind of, you know, in sort of darkness and then it starts to speak and he's, yeah, the the kind of fear when he when he knows what mm-hmm. it is and he tries to leave. That's all brilliant. It, it's yeah, I, th- I find I find some of it a little bit over the top. Um, I think that's part of the point of it, though. You know, like particularly Van Staten is kind of very like, <laughs> yeah, really American, <laughs> like stereotypically yeah. American. Um, but I, I think I think it re- works really well, and I like the fact that they're trying to do something different with the Daleks as well as introduce them. Hmm. I'm not. A massive fan of Dalek episodes. Usually, I find that they tend to be particularly Terranation. You just tend to regurgitate yeah. the same story over and over again. But also, I find that a lot of times they're quite static and and they don't really do anything with them. Whereas here, I feel like they're actually trying to bring in some moral ambiguity, both to the Dalek and Doctor himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, from that point of view, it's an, it's interesting. That this isn't the first time. One, well, not quite the first time, but certainly unusual in being a Dalek that we see subject to change mm, mm. which is interesting in itself because the whole point of them is that they are fixed yeah. entities yeah yeah um, who like have been like snipped out of the chain of evolution so I mean the main thing that I have to I fully agree with everything you just said um the main thing I would like to add actually is the origin of this episode which I think is interesting mm. because it's based loosely on a big Finnish audio written by the same writer, Rob Shearman, uh, called Jubilee. And the main, really the only thing it shares with Jubilee is this notion of a, a, a lone Dalek that's uh, like a survivor of a larger force that's chained up and being tortured and that then um, comes to gain control over its situation uh, very, very differently. 
And Jubilee, Jubilee's different because it's it's set in Britain, it's set in a kind of an alternate history Britain, and it's kind of, as the name might imply, it's kind of a satire on imperialism and uh, that kind of thing. So transplanting is to America, I think, uh, which I believe was Russell T. Davies' idea, actually, from what mm. I understand, mm. um, is obviously something that massively alters and shapes the nature of what this episode is and the nature of what it's doing with the Dalek and its kind of commentary on everything around it, which I think we'll be digging into quite a bit. Digging into because it's underground in mm. a basement because we can't afford to show America outside. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll um, have to wait a few series for that. Yeah. <laughs> and it'll be fine. Um, <laughs> so I don't actually have that much more to add, which is kind of why it's handy that I'm going last this time. <laughs> I also think it's a really, really good episode. I'm actually wearing a shirt with a squiddy Dalek exposed on it to like commemorate <laughs> the occasion. Um, I guess the only other sort of point that I did have is that I think that it's kind of unfortunate that it's never like consistent how much of a threat the Daleks are in even in the new series because this episode like this is a fault of everything else apart from this episode yeah. I have to say because this episode like so perfectly sets up how scared the Doctor is of the Dalek mm-hmm. the level of the conflict between their two civilizations everything like that and then because we just sort of have to have Daleks all the time, it sort of is diminishing returns, really. Mm. But that is not a criticism of this episode. That is kind of a praising of Eccleston's performance and the way that this episode introduces the most iconic Doctor Who monster. Mm. I mean, diminishing returns to the point that we have seen this episode remade, essentially, in Resolution quite recently. Yeah. To significantly lesser effect yeah. i think yeah i preferred it better when the squiddy boy reached his tentacles <laughs> to the sun i was moved mm. when he is like wrapping oregon from fresh meat and piloting her <laughs> disapprove <laughs> i the one actually the other thing that i the one thing i sort of don't like about this episode is the bit where at the end the person who sort of takes over the facility is his second in Mm. command and she says something about like tomorrow you'll be just another homeless junkie to van staten the the guy and i just like i hate that line like that's i mean i don't think that you're necessarily supposed to think that the changeover in power in that facility is like the best thing Mm. because clearly everybody who works there is kind of awful but the kind of the idea that his like comeuppance is being a homeless junkie is like really gross yeah Mm -hmm. um like is that what he'll be assumed to be or are they gonna i don't know how it's just i don't like it at all Mm. but that kind of is the only the only thing that that Mm. i don't like about this well, I mean, I think this that plays into um, what Jacob was talking about, actually. the What seems to be our theme for Series 1, actually. Yeah. Which is kind of a real cynicism around sort of power structures and changeover of power. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's, it's a, a constant sort of cycle of, uh, here's the new boss, same as the old boss. Yeah, fully agree with that. This episode only gets a 9 out of 10 in this, by the way, and I'd like to... (laughs) Falling short of the heights of the Unquiet Dead. Yeah, in the context of that, there are two other stories that get the 10 out of 10, and it's not Dalek, so... (sighs) Mm. 
I feel like that was a mistake. <laughs> I've come to help. I'm the doctor. Da, da. Impossible. striking about this episode i think um is something that actually and again actually there's a connection to resolution here because the first time a doctor encounters the daleks is a big deal for that doctor it's kind of a measuring stick sometimes it happens very soon sometimes it takes ages like pertwee took a few years and um, for legal reasons so did davison whereas like tom baker both of the bakers actually did it in their first year Someone. Oh, Troughton. Troughton has it in his first story, in fact. Yeah. yeah. And um, Baptism of Fire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I knew somebody did it in their first story. And so, because the Daleks are such an iconic part of Doctor Who, sending a new Doctor up against the Daleks is kind of, or even a Dalek, mm. is mm. kind of a way of measuring what that Doctor is like. Again, up against the kind of fixed quantity that the Daleks are, give or take. That makes them a good measure for a Doctor. I think that's part of the reason why resolution kind of had to be done, actually. Um, in some ways, because Series 11 had been devoid of... The boys. Of cl- well, of classic yeah. monsters in general. Yeah. Or of any returning monsters in general. So it made sense that the first one had to be a Dalek. Uh, and it had to be... because I think, it, actually, in a way, partly because of all the discourse around Jodie Whittaker, it kind of had to be done to have her up against a Dalek to... I don't want to say to prove that she can be the Doctor, but, like, kind of that. To show that girls can fight Daleks, too. Yeah. Hashtag feminism. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting here that, um, as as in Resolution, much less successfully, it's a lone Dalek. Yeah. And I I think that works really well, I think. Particularly later on in the Moffat era, one of the issues is the dilution of the power of the Daleks in terms of in terms of how dangerous they are uh, and how frightening they're supposed to be anyway. By having the Doctor make some flippant comment at like a whole army of them, mm-hmm. you know. Whereas with this, it's like the Daleks just going through the base, a single Dalek mowing down lots of people. The Doctor's reaction when he sees. This one lone, hmm. very damaged Dalek is, yeah. is fear. You know, it's um, that's very effective in establishing them as uh, you know the kind of great villains they're supposed to be. It's why if I'm introducing someone to the new series, this is one of the episodes I tell them to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, be- certainly before any other Dalek episode. Yeah, and I think it's one of the things that the episode does very successfully because the notion of the Daleks was so fixed in the cultural imagination they'd become. I mean, they already—they very, very quickly became in the sixties. Uh, these kind of these figures that like everyone felt very affectionate for, 
and like there were just these nice things that everyone wanted to hug. Uh, and especially when the show had been off the air, they'd become kind of figures of fun of like, oh, those Daleks, you know, all you have to do is climb some stairs to get away from them, which was never the case, but nobody saw Remembrance of the Daleks. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, <laughs> that is another point of um, dialogue actually between this series and uh, the Carmel era. Mm. And so what this does is it reintroduces the fact that actually the Daleks can be really scary. Not only because they're powerful within the narrative, they're canonically these really powerful, very difficult to defeat monsters, but also that they have this power of like, that they are these figures of fear. And I think, I think you're absolutely right that Eccleston's performance and his reaction when he first sees the Dalek does so much work for that. I would like to hug a Dalek, so I think I'm part of the problem. <laughs> but I also would want to hug Cthulhu and maybe like a mind flayer from D&D, so I have my own issues to work through. <laughs> it's true, this is Bethan's brand. <laughs> Actually, something, an interesting little point of continuity that struck me is at one point, as I assume it's Van Satin, mentions that the Dalek landed 50 years ago. About uh, 50 years ago. Bearing in mind that the episode is set in 2012. That means it landed around 1963. Mm. So it's dated to the point of origin of the series. And point of origin of the Daleks, in fact. And so, once again, it is this this entity that is tied into the series' DNA in a very direct way. Yeah, yeah. I saved your life, now Talk to me! God damn it, talk to me! You've got to destroy! Last in the universe. Now I know your name. Dalek. Speak to me, Dalek. I am Henry Van Staten. Now recognize me. Make it talk again, Simmons. Whatever it takes. Something we haven't talked about yet is the way in which this episode plays with the idea of information and with mm. the internet and I'm going to say another thing that's going to sound very strange that a lot of this is to do with what's called info capitalism or the knowledge economy so what I mean by that is uh, as Paul Mason puts it uh, the promise that new technology will produce an information economy and a knowledge society so the idea that new technologies like the internet has provided a lot of essentially free information that is available to everyone and that it can potentially reduce reduce the costs of things and the cost of production, improve innovation, all these kind of things. Now, in the context of Dalek, it's interesting because to begin with, Van Staten supposedly owns the internet. Mm. Now, <laughs> that's obviously quite an overstatement to say the least, but I think what it's doing, when you combine that with the fact that this is a story that is all about collecting alien items and just archiving them, the whole thing really is an analogy about the way in which the internet and a knowledge economy collects and archives large amounts of material. But the fact that this is a private museum that is purely for Van Staten's own pleasure and benefit and profit and no one else's, is to me a kind of comment on the way in which a knowledge economy has developed. So it's not been for the benefit of everyone. Mm. It's been 
for the benefit of a lot of private companies like Google and Facebook. And I mean, the, the example Mason gives in his book, Post-Capitalism, which is useful in some ways, but also has problems, is about, he uses an academic article and then he says, this is completely free for me to quote, but I have to pay £18 something, $18 something on JSTOR or whatever it is, an academic website with a paywall in order to access it. Mm. And so knowledge, rather than being free for everyone's use, has been privatised in the same way that Van Staten's whole collection is privatised. And there seems to be a kind of comment about the way in which the potential of all that information to be used usefully in an, in an, and to fuel innovation and progress has actually not come to fruition. And that kind of comes to a head when Van Staten and the Doctor have that exchange in which Van Staten, uh, in which the Doctor talks about how mankind goes into space to explore, to be part of something greater. And Van Staten says that he wants to touch the stars. And the Doctor's response is that he wants to drag the stars down. It's brilliant mm-hmm. line. And stick them underground underneath tons of sand and dirt and label them. You're about as far from the stars as you can get. And so the Doctor sets Van Staten's approach in opposition to human innovation. Mm. He, mm. you know, we, we talked about this last time about the way in which human space exploration is seen as a kind of a symbol of human ingenuity and innovation. Yeah. And yet here it's the precise opposite. The idea that he wants to drag all this stuff down it implies that it's moribund and it's stagnant. And so in effect, the way in which private, large-scale private and wealthy interests have captured the potential of collating large amounts of information and the way in which they've privatised the information is actually becoming a drag and a form of stagnation. And then the Dalek downloads the internet and becomes mm. the kind of physical embodiment of that, and it becomes a threat. Mm. And so, yeah, that's a very long-winded way of saying there's something interesting happening here with the economic context of the story. I guess he's also kind of got, like, his... Adam is his, like, resident academic, genius, science boy. Yeah. So he's kind of, like, bought a person who has the ability to comprehend the artifact as well. So he's, Mm. like, bought that. That's true, he's bought expertise. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, That's true. Yeah. And so... And it's also just, like, he doesn't really want to use the stuff that he has because they have the musical instrument... He just wants to have it, so it's like... Well, I mean, it's even put economically in terms of the fact that when he looks at the Doctor's binary vascular system, I think, or that, you know, it's mm. two hearts, he says, I'm going to patent it. Mm. And, yes. and, and, he sa- and he says he found the cure for the common cold through this alien technology, but he's not going to release it, again, dangerously going into conspiracy theory, but mm. um, he's not going to release it because he can sell palliatives. And so all the potential and all the richness of what he's finding is actually being wasted on the basis that he wants to profit from it. He's um, he's a bit like Iron mm. Man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I'm not a big fan of mm. Tony Stark, so mm. this is kind of like where that's coming from. But this is kind of like if he fully went the worst possible if he was being the worst possible Iron Man he could be then Mm. that would be this guy (laughs) Mm. Mm. which obviously is like a weird comparison to make because the MCU was not a thing when this was going down although Tony Stark was a thing Mm. so I don't know but 
that's kind of who he reminds me of. I was trying to like put my finger on it, but <laughs> yeah. more than like any yeah. real world comparison, it's like Tony Stark from the Marvel mm. movies and mm. comics. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that makes sense because Tony Stark is himself representing um, mm. the same kind of thing that Van Staten is, and they're both overblown versions of people yeah, who do yeah. exist, yeah. Mm. Um, or at least that kind of, uh, shall we say, class of people who do exist. Mm. That moment that you raise as well with the with the musical instrument, I think that's that's a brilliant bit because it's just the way he just throws it away carelessly, like it's not valued at all, and the Doctor's kind mm. of chain. It's such an economical way of showing what he's like as a character, mm. and that is something that runs throughout the entire episode: is this concern with value and worth. Yeah, you know, he throws that away as though it's it's not worth anything at all. He talks about how the soldiers who are fighting the Dalek are dispensable because mm. the Dalek's unique. And it's this sense that ideas of profit and a kind of self-interest are distorting what's actually valuable. There's also the guy whose memory he has wiped um, because he's of apparently no use to mm. him, mm. Um, which obviously then happens to him because, mm. that's because like this is a cynical series and... Re- replicating structures of power blah, blah, blah. I think yeah. it's also like um, an obsession with like categorising things but not necessarily doing mm. anything more because that's mm. what the museum is it's not like a museum for educational purposes or yeah. for like cultural enrichment it's just like a selection of things that he's like labelled and put in boxes and so part of the reason why he's like torturing the Dalek is just because he wants to like find out mm. stuff about it yeah and then maybe use it for like some business purpose yeah, yeah. but if not yeah. then presumably it's just going to be put in a box and he knows what it is but nobody else does and so there's no point to it but it's mm-hmm. like and it's and it's that kind of categorization beyond what the kind of experience you can have from hearing a musical instrument or yeah. knowing about the musical music of other like civilizations it's just what is it i know what it is next thing yeah, it's a kind of it's an abstract and an incomplete form of knowledge. Mm. I mean, there's also things like, for instance, he has the Cyberman head. Does he know what a Cyberman is? Mm. Presumably not. Mm. Uh, I'm this. I know this gets messy in terms of continuity when you think of what happens in the next few series, because he should know what a Dalek is because there have been Daleks on Earth in like between 2005 and 2012. He was a uh, scuba diving. <laughs> He was always in the bunker the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> he never left. Constant <laughs> vigilance. <laughs> Compressed information streaming into it. Reports from every city, every country, every planet, and they all get packaged inside her head. She becomes part of the software. Her brain is the computer. If it all goes through her, she must be a genius. Nah. She wouldn't remember anything. That's too much. Her head would blow up. The brain's the processor. As soon as it closes, she forgets. So, what about all these people around the edge? They've all got tiny little chips in the head connecting them to her, and they transmit 600 channels. Every single fact in the Empire beams out of this place. Now, that's what I call power. Uh, The long game, then. The long game is more than any other episode, actually, more even than Aliens of London World War III, is the one I came to the series with a bit of trepidation for. Because it kind of, like that that episode has kind of acquired a reputation as being not particularly great, as being a bit kind of certainly sort of inessential. Which is weird given that both kind of do tie very heavily into the kind of overall arc of the, the series. 
And from that point of view, I was a little bit pleasantly surprised in that it's not awful. I don't think it's very good, but it's not awful. <laughs> I mean, I approached it in a different way this time as well because of the backstory to it, which I'll get into in a, few, in a couple of minutes. But because of that, I was, um, like with Dalek, actually, I was looking at it in quite a different way this time around. Yeah, again, I... Um... I didn't really have much recollection of this one. I think I remembered it being not that spectacular, so it was kind of a pleasant surprise to watch it and find it that and find that it was a um, like an engaging and good episode overall. I'd say. What I want to know is if it's like an Adric revenge fantasy with like Adam mm. getting kind of punished for the forbidden knowledge. <laughs> tasting the fruit of having a <laughs> hole in your head but i guess maybe we can talk about that a little yeah, bit so. um but yeah there's also this idea that like he's not good enough to travel mm. with the doctor which i imagine we'll want to like mm. spend a little bit of time on if we've got time yeah <laughs> yeah it's good it's a good episode that's what i have to say over to you jacob <laughs> yeah it's um i openly surprised um i i didn't like it when i first watched it when i was when i was young um misspent youth yeah <laughs> callow youth <laughs> but yeah no i um i, I it, it surpassed my expectations definitely from what i remembered of it i think it's it I, it's also that it's it's much more interesting now Given things yes. that have happened recently, yes. and its so. relationship to news and truth, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's prescient, because I think it's more indicative of the fact that the issues that we've seen and what people call post-truth, heavy quotation marks, a lot of the manifestations of that recently, are, I would argue, just the emergence of something that has been ruminating for a while. Mm. So I think it's more symptomatic of the fact that it has been there. But I think now now that it's become more obvious in society, I think it's uh, it makes a, a more interesting piece of television. I do think it's got some issues. Mm. Um, I think, I don't know, I'll get into this later on, but I, I think uh, the way in which it reduces systemic issues down to... A single horrific monster, mm. and tries to embody them in that is is an issue. But I'll come on to that. But yeah, largely it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is one that like comes in for quite a low rating in the book, actually. Like, okay, let's like, find out what Mark Campbell thinks. <laughs> Sorry, I know that we're devoting a lot of time to this one guy, but I just feel like yeah. So this is a four out of ten. Oh, okay. Oh, mm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, to start out with, the um, the backstory that I alluded to is basically in about, I think, around 1987, mm. a young, uh, fresh-faced Russell D. Davies um, <laughs> submitted a, an embryonic version of this episode to Andrew Carpmel, who was then script editor on Doctor Who, and who is the ghost haunting this episode for some reason, despite being alive. But um, and Carmel sent it back to him, um, saying he thought it was it was good, it showed promise, but he thought it was too abstract. I think he speci- he wanted it to be more human. I think the um, uh, the the, qu- the phrase he used was he, it needed to be about a man with a dog and a mortgage or something like that. 
And so Davies, like, presumably spent, like, 17 years working on it. <laughs> and then um, it came back as this. Now, I don't know exactly what was in that uh, early version, unfortunately. I, I don't know if there's, like, any version of it floating around or if either Carmel or Davies have talked about it. But I would like to know what was in that version because I think it's an... It is very interesting in how it deals with a kind of contemporary moment in a slightly less heavy-handed way than... That's still quite heavy-handed in some ways. Uh, a slightly less heavy-handed way than something like Aliens of London World War Three. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of... What you were saying there, Jacob, makes me think of something a, a lecturer of mine said when talking about... I can't remember, one of Brian Friel's plays, where he said um, something along the lines of prophecy isn't the power to see the future. It's the power to look into the present so deeply that the pattern of the future can be discerned mm. in it. Mm. And I think that's kind of the highest praise I can give this episode, which makes it sound like I like this episode a lot more than I actually do. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think there's something of that going on mm. in mm. terms of the way it approaches ideas of, of, of the news and of truth and facts and such like things. Mm. I mean, before leaving that, I'd, I did want to say that Watching it, knowing that backstory, I did find that, like, its origin in the Carmel era does kind of show through in some ways. The world building, the kind of quite loud nature of it, as it were, the the fact that it's this really kind of crowded um, space full of, like, these wild signifiers reminded me of something like uh, Paradise Towers a little bit. But I think that's... That's just because I was looking at it through that lens, really. What about the uh, the fourth great and bountiful human empire? Yeah, that's an interesting phrasing, isn't it? Mm, because, yeah. like, it's I I see this as kind of a continuation of the weirdness of the idea of the golden age, the the oncoming golden age in Aliens of London, mm. World War Three, mm. and that it's kind of like a weird way of like thinking about history. Yeah. But um, there's this kind of, I think the way that they say it is that there's aliens that sort of live in the fourth great and bountiful human empire, but it's like still the human empire. Yeah, and it's an empire. Yeah, it's Mm. like very strange because the empire seems to imply that it's more than Earth or like does imply that even though the satellite is broadcasting, well, I think it's set up to broadcast to Earth. I think so. But yeah, it's like this, it's quite odd it's a weird way of like looking at so obviously it's the future but this is the kind of like periodization that you get from looking back in the past mm. so it's a weird way of like interacting with history if you like go to a place and you're like oh this should be thriving because i know about it from the future mm. and then try and figure out why that is it's like kind of counter to what the doctor does when he goes to like past that is our past if that makes sense like yeah. it would be weird if he showed up in cardiff and was like Oh, Cardiff should be should mm. be thriving at this point mm. in history. Let's fix that, mm. which obviously wouldn't like that would be really weird. And I feel like it's still the future is still the past for somebody. So it's kind of odd that he shows up and is like, "Wow, this place really isn't great or bountiful. Mm. Let's look into that kind of thing." I think it's sort of like he. 
I assume he has been there before or he knows about it. And he, yeah. He think, well, like he looks at the technology, doesn't he? So he looks at the, the, the door in their head, as he says. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and, he says, and he says that it's, it's wrong and it should, be, it should have been thrown out years ago and they should be much further ahead than mm. that. Yeah. So I'm guessing that that's why he's saying it. But yeah. Because, I mean, I, like we know from the finale that the reason it's wrong uh, is not just the Jagrafess, it's the... Um, that the Daleks have been yeah. kind of messing with human history. Mm. So there's time travel shenanigans going on there because they came mm. from the Time War. Mm. Uh, and Daleks mm. can travel in time anyway, you know, from many, many other things. So there's a, it's this strange notion of there being a kind of wound in time, which is something that has, has come up in Doctor Who before. Mm. Uh, it's a big thing in Big Finish, actually. It comes up in a lot of Big Finish stories because it's kind of an, an easy thing to represent on audio, I suppose. But in this way, in this case, it's represented through this notion of history being wrong, but in a, a very a weirdly sort of tangible way. Mm. And it's it's hard to kind of put a finger on that because talking about the future in that way, especially the fairly distant future, is very very abstract. Because it presumably chronologically, it's the equivalent of going to I don't know, um, if they'd gone to 1869 and, like, people had been walking around in sort of Elizabethan fashions. Presumably it's the equivalent mm. of that. But, you know, we would recognise that. We would recognise those signifiers. And mm. um, Whereas this, we just kind of have to be told, mm. which doesn't really have the same impact. I do have reasoning behind why this has been done. And okay. how it relates politically, okay. but I am not going to say it yet because Ooh. I'm, I'm sizzle. The reason why is because <laughs> because the only way I think you can make sense of it is to look at how the long game relates to Bad Wolf and the Part right, of the Ways. Yeah, yeah. So okay. I'm going to wait till we get to that before okay. I go into that okay, properly. Okay, okay, okay. But you might start to decipher what I'm going <laughs> to say from that. I don't know. I think know. we should um, end every episode of this podcast with, like, Jacob dropping a Marvel Cinematic Universe-style teaser. <laughs> it's, like... just because, it's just because a lot of this, I think, is... There's a lot of thematic coherence going mm. on yeah. that yeah. I can only talk about as a whole. Yeah. No, um, as opposed to me trying to drip-feed people reasons to listen next time yeah. if they want to hear me drivel on about... <laughs> this stuff. Yeah. I like. I, I think. I. I have some idea of, of where you're going. Yeah. I think. I, I, yeah. I get what you're. What you're gesturing towards. I do still want to drill into the word empire a little bit. Though, yeah. No. Because yeah. like, that's such a loaded word. Mm. Like, what on earth is that word doing here? <laughs> Does it mean that they've like moved off Earth as like one civilization, and like. just sort of settled on other planets because i feel like empire implies a kind of conquest yeah yeah um rather than just sort of like showing up finding a planet that's like habitable but nobody's there and moving Mm. in (laughs) yeah i feel like it's kind of i don't know what the word for that kind of a structure would be but like i feel like empire kind of is quite Mm. um also it kind of implies an emperor yeah, it, to mm. some extent, I can't think of a yeah. of, of of anything that's been sort of called an empire that doesn't have somebody kind of pulling the strings that mm. isn't a Jagrafess. Um because it's not supposed to be the Jagrafess, It's supposed mm. to be, or is well, it that like humanity is pulling the strings over all the like alien races and civilizations, which mm. is still dodgy. Which is 
if anything, maybe dodgier. even dodgier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just find it's just quite a weird concept, I think. Yeah. Which is what I think you were saying yeah, to like, like, throw in there. Because I, I don't even have like a, a sustained sort of post-colonial critique of that. Because there's nothing there to critique, really. Mm-hmm. It's just a really weird use of a, what should mm-hmm. be a very loaded term. And like, and especially in the court of kind of the history of Doctor Who, which there's loads of episodes of the classic series that are like, in one way or another, kind of critiques of colonialism and of imperialism to varying degrees of success. Mm. But it's actually quite a sustained sort of threat in the series. So from that point of view, it's it's very, very strange to run up against something like that here. Mm. It's frustrating in a way that there's not much more to say about it apart from yeah. like, Weird word choice. <laughs> any any expansion expansion on that RTV, <laughs> and then he just doesn't like. There's nothing that really like sort of comes out of it. Yeah. So, which is weird, given that we spend two more episodes in this setting. Yeah. Mm. But that's that's I think. That's when that's yeah. that's when we really that's when Jacob's gonna hit the groove and like. Yeah. Tell Sorry. Us, no, it's okay. Do you want to talk about Adric for a bit instead? Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say, there is there is one thing I can say in relation to this whole thing, sort of, area that we've been looking at. Do it. Which is that, I think, and maybe this is just because I was watching Dalek before, and so my thinking was following through, but there is, there is a similar thing thematically going on in the long game as there is with Dalek. In terms of again how it treats information, mm-hmm. um, yeah, okay, I can see that. Because you've got this this whole thing with the chips in their heads, where they're getting information sort of streamed into them. These people who are supposed to be journalists of some kind, <laughs> uh, <laughs> questionable. But um, again, it's the idea of having huge, huge amounts of data, but not actually doing anything with it. Mm-hmm. So it's like I, I think whilst the whole idea with the story is that they're being held back because of this nefarious creature upstairs whose mm. strings are actually being pulled by another lot of nefarious creatures. There's actually another element here, which is that they're being held back by a sort of saturation of information without dissecting that information. Mm. So the information flows into them, but then, like the doctor says, Cathy could won't remember it. Hmm. So they, it's almost like people have become conduits for information, mm, yeah. but they're not actually critiquing or examining where it's come from, mm. how it's sourced, and the result is false news that is used to basically buttress this system. Mm. And that's why you get this constant criticism from the Doctor of Cathica, you know, when, when they're looking at the plumbing and Rose asks questions about, like, why is it so hot? And she goes, oh, something to do with the pipes. And the doctor sort of makes fun of her for it. Because she's supposed to be a journalist. She's supposed to ask questions. And she has all this information, yet she's not questioning any of it. And I think that's a comment on the nature of journalism at the time and now, you know. I do like how the resolution involves Kafka like stepping yeah. up. Yeah. As well, yeah, yeah. Because I feel like that's the kind of optimism that we've felt is maybe lacking in other parts of the series. The fact mm. that like she mm. does change based on what the Doctor mm. and Rose kind mm. of inspire in her and decides that she's going to take a stand. And mm. I, 
I like that bit. Mm. Although the problem there is that, uh, I mean, you're quite right within the uh, confines of this this episode. But then, that. but like the Harriet Jones thing, that gets undermined. Yeah. yeah. But she tried. <laughs> yeah. It may interest you to know that this is not the fourth great and bountiful human empire. In fact, it's not actually human at all. It's merely a place where humans happen to live. Sorry. It's a place where humans are allowed to live by kind permission of my client. That thing's in charge of Satellite 5. That thing, as you put it, is in charge of the human race. For almost a hundred years, mankind has been shaped and guided, his knowledge and ambition strictly controlled by its broadcast news, edited by my superior, your master, and humanity's guiding light, the mighty Jagrafess of the holy Hadrajasic Maxirat. I call him Max. Something that occurred to me while you were saying that is that, like... So the Jagrafess is commonly taken to be like a sort of not particularly subtle stand-in for Rupert Murdoch, yeah. or at least someone of his ilk. Yeah, yeah. But if he's being manipulated by the Daleks, who are they in mm. this metaphor? The Slitheen. Mm. Well, you see, so that's... Sorry, we'll get off this in a minute, but that's another thing that I kind of alluded to on, at the start, is I think there's an issue here with... And again, it's it's science fiction... And it is a limitation because it's a metaphor, but I think there is a problem with, in this episode, reducing systemic issue down to an embodiment, or trying to embody it in a single figure. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Because I think that's where you start to get into the realm of conspiracy theory. So we're talking about someone like Peter Knight, who I've been reading a lot of, who writes on conspiracy theory. He talks about there's... Well, he's got some really good stuff on like the history of conspiracy theory, and two sort of main elements that he brings up is often you'll have conspiracy theories that either treat a system as totally amorphous and huge and and reduces people down to such a small size and cog within it that they can't do anything. Mm. Or you go in the opposite direction and you have a system that is huge and you try to embody it in one person or group of people. Yeah. And that's when you start to get into really dangerous stuff i mean like yeah. i think anti-semitism is yeah. a really good example of that and so I, I don't know i mean it is a metaphor and it's a piece of fiction but i can see how you could start to get into dangerous realms with that anyway there we go that's all i have to say about that <laughs> stop now now i'll never know if i was right to be honest, this is probably the only time that I'm really going to suggest like talking about Adric for any like sustained <laughs> period of time. Because like, I guess for anybody who's, who might be listening to the podcast but hasn't watched like the classic series, Adric is terrible. He's like this like <laughs> supposed child genius, but actually he just has like a gold star badge in mathematics, which like, he's like 14, we all had a gold star badge in mathematics at 14. And he just, like, consistently tries to work with the villains and does, yeah. like, stuff that undermines what everybody else is trying to do. Not unlike Adam in this episode mm. when he kind of decides that he's going to go off and have um, the the forehead thing yeah. done. 
and then is ultimately punished by being told in no uncertain terms that he is not good enough to travel with the Doctor mm. and never will be, and then traumatises his poor mum, which... <laughs> and possibly dogs. Yeah. Well, I actually, when I first watched it, and still now, I really didn't like the ending because it upset me that, like, in a way his mum is getting, like, punished yeah. for his misdeeds by having, like, the trauma of seeing the head opening thing before he's had a chance to try and explain it. Mm. Yeah. And I still don't like that but also i wonder if maybe the whole thing of him going off and doing something that potentially ruins everything is like somebody really wanted to write adric getting told off for being terrible (laughs) and they couldn't because adric wasn't a thing anymore so they had it told off to adam instead Mm. i mean the other crucial bit of context um, for adric from that point of view is the fact that he dies horribly Mm. oh yeah (laughs) so like Adric's already been punished within the narrative. That's how much everybody yeah. like, hated him. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I feel like it is maybe partly that, because the fact that their names are kind of like vaguely similar as well, I'm mm. like, mm, this is maybe isn't even like a subtle thing. <laughs> um, but like, it's kind of weird setting up the idea that there, that you have to adhere to a certain standard to like, yeah. get with Doctor in a friendship way mm. well you have to get with his friends yeah <laughs> <laughs> if you really 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 want to zig a zig ah you know we referenced that song in the last episode I yeah. would like that to be the bad wolf of this podcast <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end we'll have to defeat the final boss which is all of the Spice Girls combined together <laughs> oh god in their Voltron form <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah I feel like maybe there's something of that with with the character of Adam, but also, like, the Doctor hasn't really had clear standards for who he takes no, in the TARDIS up to this not. point. There's still, like, a Centauran in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Tegan... Yeah, like we were saying last time, Tegan wanders in by accident. Yeah, so, like, it's kind of weird in that sense, but it sets up something that's going to be, like, a feature of the new series companions, I think. Yeah, I mean, I talked a little bit about this last time, but there is a sense in which new series companions prove themselves and then travel mm. with the TARDIS, as opposed to kind of doing both at once, uh, or, like, as I say, just kind of wandering into the TARDIS by accident or some kind of strange happenstance uniting them with the Doctor. I mean, it's not as though that kind of thing doesn't happen in the classic series. Like... Sarah Jane, for instance, kind of does both in the sense that she is already kind of snooping around, investigating, and then she does wander into the TARDIS and accidentally ends up in medieval times, vaguely medieval times, which we'll be talking about soon, actually. But, like, there didn't always used to be such a picky standard for companions. Like, when Lizard left, if the Brig had just handed the third Doctor, like, a mop with a face on it, he would have just been like... (laughs) Come along, Joe. No time to be done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. A moth that could hand him test tubes and tell him how clever he is. I'll, I'm trying not to say something about the way they show Yaz in the new series, and it's really oh, difficult. Yeah. I would like to point out that I actually really like Yaz, and I'm frustrated <laughs> by the way that mm. they misuse her potential as a character. And I want to get that out now, because otherwise it just sounds like I'm being completely dismissive of her completely but yeah it's kind of weird that like we now have a standard that the companions have to meet to get with the doctor and or his friends <laughs> well i think i'm gonna have to say it again 
this harks back to the 80, the late eighties again. <laughs> uh, well, oh actually, God, just wait till Father's Day. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, I've, yeah, I've got, I've got notes. To say about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, but this actually, I think this is maybe more wilderness years thing than an actual Carmel years thing. But it goes a little bit hark back to the idea of the Seventh Doctor as the kind of the chess master, the kind of manipulative one who like puts his companions through stuff. The idea of a doctor who is testing his companions. No, the ninth doctor is not consciously testing Adam, I don't think. There's never really a sense of that. Um, but there is the sense that if there were a test, he would have failed. For reasons that are not actually super specific in the episode. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a sense that he succumbed to some kind of greed. But... I mean, there's a this is this episode is actually a really good example of what I was talking about with the forty five minute episodes, where it tries to squeeze a lot in, mm-hmm. and as a result, we like are left wondering what the hell the fourth great and bountiful human empire is, um, but also what's what what exactly is going on with Adam? Because apart from spending a weird amount of time in the medical bay with Tamsin Greek, which is which is probably a great choice. Because, oh yeah, like... I, mean, I would. <laughs> He, his motivation and what, what on earth he's actually doing is not super fleshed out. Like, we know, yeah, he wants to get some knowledge about the future and, like, send it to him, himself slash his dogs in the past. But, yeah, sorry, this is... I know One I, dog and off-screen dogs. <laughs> yeah, this is, this, is, this is something I noticed as a bit of a tangent, that Adam's mother's house has one picture of him and a load of pictures of dogs, um, which is... A set of priorities. Fave character. Hmm. The dogs. Yes. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think as a result, this subplot is kind of a... Is a victim of the the 45 minute thing. And it feels... It does... One of the reasons why I'm I'm inclined to agree with you about the Adric revenge thing is that it feels like Russell T. Davies having a bit of an axe to grind. But not being super specific about what that axe is. Just any old axe. Just like the general frustration that you feel in the Several back of your mind when once. you like become dimly aware of Adric and you're like... Argh. Yeah. yeah it's, it's one of the reasons why the Fifth Doctor is considered so nice and kind of like gentle and kind because he, he put up with Adric for a whole season. Nearly. I just feel like it seems kind of incongruous that we're hating on like a teenage boy, but if you've seen Adric, yeah, then you would know. Then you would know. <laughs> if you've seen Adric, and if you've seen Tom Baker's face when he has to share the screen with Adric, because it's it's glorious. Well, it's maybe a little bit more dodgy than that, but it's yeah. I never read you those bedtime stories. I never took you on those picnics. I was never there for you. You would have been. But I can do this for you. I can be a proper dad to you now. That's not fair. I've had all these extra hours. No one else in the world has ever had that. And on top of that, I get to see you. You're beautiful. How lucky am I, eh? So, come on. Do as your dad says. Then let us move on to Father's Day. Woo! 
Um, Bethan, do you want to start us Yeah, I really like this one. This is like genuinely one of my favourites. Uh, I mean, you'll find out where it comes in my rankings, but it's like really one of the best episodes of, sorry, best stories of this series. I really like um, the kind of human drama of um, Rose meeting her family and friends in the past. Mm-hmm. I think that I find it really moving, actually. Like, I hadn't seen mm-hmm. this one in years, but I was genuinely like brought to tears watching it like that's how much it was like a a big deal and I really like the dealing with the image that she has of her father versus him as a person Mm -hmm. but also how the experiences that they go through because of her actions show how he had the potential to be the kind of hero that she Mm -hmm. always thought that he was yeah and so I think that's kind of like a beautiful like circle in a way and I also just like seeing more of Jackie and this is the point where it like acknowledges the fact that like Pete acknowledges the fact that it was Jackie bringing up Rose herself that made Rose the admirable person that she is today and that unfortunately he wasn't a part of that but that he's going to do what he can to make that happen and I just really like that really got to me I don't know. And I and also I love the moment where the doctor is like just having a chat with like the couple that are getting married in the church, mm-hmm. and um, he's like asking them how they got together and stuff, and they're like, oh well, you wouldn't be interested. We're just sort of like ordinary people. It's like not a very interesting story. But then he like really is, and like, I just I like that side of the doctor of any doctor, but I just like seeing that interest mm-hmm. and concern for people who were just living their lives and making the best of whatever and I just yeah I I really love this episode yeah um I'm gonna agree with everything you've said uh I really like this it's one of my favorite episodes of this series again I think it being rooted in kind of an emotional uh turmoil and story that's I think that's great I yeah I just I think it's I don't really have much to criticize about it to be honest yeah, you've pretty much said everything I want to say about it. It's really good. Yeah, I I mean, I echo all of that. I hadn't seen this episode for a long time. Mm. For some strange reason, I only watched it once when I first got the DVDs um, because I didn't actually see all of Series 1 on transmission. And I think, I actually think looking back, it must have actually just been a bit too much for me. Uh, emotionally mm. because I mean coming back I, I really really enjoyed it it's a really pleasant surprise and I for some reason you know people have particular tropes and particular things that just somehow push their buttons mm. for some reason I have a big thing for time travel stories involving parents and children and um, like anything where someone goes back in time and meets mm. their parents especially if those parents are dead or are no longer there or whatever just really gets to me mm. and so naturally enough this episode was like really really made for me in some way i am i'd also there's some nice touch as well because i'd also forgotten that the little boy playing on the park is actually like a young mickey yeah so that i like i'd forgotten so much of it that that was like a Mm -hmm. genuine like revelation that was quite funny (laughs) i think what's great about this as well for me is like i've said a lot that i have an issue with the excessiveness and some of the ridiculousness of Russell T Davies era and I think that with this story it's much more muted Mm. I think there's more subtlety I I really like most things that I've seen and read of Paul Cornell Mm. uh, his writing 
and yeah, I think I think this is exactly the kind of thing I like the program doing. I like the ambiguity as well about like a lot of the characters, particularly Pete. Like we never really obviously find out the truth of like if he has cheated on Jackie mm. at any point because mm. it's definitely mm. like she thinks that he has. And I feel like it's really interesting that they went fully with making him like this flawed character but who has the ability to like do remarkable things in like a tough situation and I think that like it's kind of nice to see as well like where Rose sort of comes from because Mm. you can sort of see how she's got like the good qualities of both of her parents even though obviously she didn't Mm. know Pete but like the kind of mythology of Pete has influenced her as well Mm. and I think this episode just does everything really well and gets a lot of emotions and i think that like the are they called reapers yeah yeah like that's quite i think that works quite well in that like obviously they're not the they're not the main focus of the episode even though they are what's driving the threat but i think they sort of sketch in enough detail details of what they are and what can stop them that like yeah it makes sense and yeah. you don't need to like think about it yeah too much and you can kind of enjoy both sides of it because the real sort of sci-fi plot is the fact that like Pete yeah. still has to complete the he has, still has to die unfortunately mm-hmm. so like the Reapers are kind of just they don't try and do too much with them or make them too much of a thing mm-hmm. they're just there and then we can get to like the good stuff. <laughs> I think they they do what I, I often want an alien in the program to do or a villain or whatever which is they're tied thematically to everything else mm. um you know so they, they they almost like look like figures of death uh, sort of like black and, and they're called yeah, yeah, reapers. reapers and they're called reapers and the way in which i'll, I'll go into this later because i have things to say about this the way in which they're they're spoken about and the language that's used surrounding them ties them in really nicely to the way in which the episode deals with time and deals yeah. with history. I think it's worth focusing a little bit, actually. I mean, for pretty much every episode um, so far, we've at least made reference to the writer. But I think here it's actually worth delving into Paul Cornell a little bit. He, I think he is very relevant to this episode, obviously, because he wrote it. But, like, I think there are, there are things about him that kind of... Uh, kind of shine a light on particularly interesting things about this episode. I also just generally really like Paul Cornell. His newsletter is well worth a look if you don't already get it. Just comes across a really lovely person. But anyway, so he is kind of, he's like one of the great heroes of the the wilderness years as a writer. Uh, He wrote a number of new adventures which are generally very well thought of. I think he's one of, if not the best thought of, of the new adventures writers. Uh, He's also written a few Big Finish uh, stories which are quite good i've read a few of them one of which he wrote actually co-wrote with uh, his wife uh, caroline simcox who is a church of england vicar uh which is re- obviously quite yeah. relevant to this episode um and there's a kind of there's an anglican sort of subtext you could say to a lot of what he writes mm. there is a kind of religious subtext i think going on through quite a bit of the davis era and um, i'll talk about it quite a bit when we get to the Emperor Dalek in um, Party of the Ways, because I think that's really, really interesting. But this is probably the most overt sort of religious dimension we've had to an episode so far. 
He's also, I mean, as I, as I say, he's like a hero of the wilderness years. And so, again, he's emerging out of the Cartmel <laughs> um, but uh, that's, Drink. Yeah. That's very, very, like, it, they, they really hang a lantern on it here. In that, like, it's set in 1987. There's, like, anti-Thatcher posters in the background. The Andrew Cartmel, for anyone who doesn't know, in his interview uh, to be script editor on Doctor Who... Uh, was asked what he wants to do with the show, and his answer was bring down the government. Uh, or I think it was topple the government. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> either way. So there's a there's yeah there's a very obvious kind of tribute going on there. The other thing actually is Bethan brought up um, something something that I really enjoy about the episode as well, which is its kind of attention to the ordinary. Specifically, in particular, that scene where the Doctor is talking to the couple in the church. Which is something that is often at the heart of the new series, can also get lost, I think, especially in the new series, with the kind of the mythic scope of what's often going on. I think both both Davies and Moffat have the thing where they really want to to have the show be about the ordinary, but they also wanted to have this kind of mythic grandeur and the two do come into conflict quite a bit. Um but Cor- Cornell's very good at it. Mm-hmm. I mean it comes through in one of his most famous new adventure stories, which he adapted for the TV show, Human Nature, which literally forces the Doctor into ordinary human life. Mm. So I think that's worth paying attention to here as well. I think that like there's a kind of crossover between mythic grandeur and the ordinary in that to Rose, Pete is a kind of mythic yeah, figure that's absolutely. been built up through the stories that mm. Jackie's told her. Mm. And so there's a kind of like... And then his kind of sacrifice is kind of a mythic sacrifice in that it's like heroic on a grand scale because he gives mm-hmm. up his life to like, oh my God, I'm getting insane. Yeah. Oh God. I just realized as you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> happens outside a church as well. <laughs> yeah, so he like gives up his life to free London from sin or whatever. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think that that is kind of like, the dream overlap between Mm. ordinary Mm. life and this kind of mythic heroic scale. And I like that he gets to kind of be the hero as well. Because the Doctor is, in a brave and interesting decision, the Doctor is trying to save, continue to save Pete's life because that is what Rose Mm. wanted and he's trying to deal with the consequences of that rather than kill Pete again. Yeah. And so I like how then it's kind of, it's like Pete works it out and it's his decision and, mm. Mm. yeah. The, the Doctor is completely sidelined for the climax. In fact, he's dead. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. Um, for like several minutes of the episode. Mm. And someone has to step up and like be the Doctor <laughs> or whatever. But yeah, I, I really like it. Mm. I mean, I've got to be honest. I, having seen... You know, quite read quite a bit of Paul, Paul Connell stuff. I would really like to see what he would do as a showrunner. Mm. I would really, I'd be really. I mean, you can never tell because yeah. I was really excited about Moffat and I was mm. very disappointed. But I would, re- I'd be really interested to see what he'd do with it. I yeah. mean, I love this, and I also love Human Nature, Family of Blood. Yeah. Has mm. he done anything else for the news? Not news? for the TV. No. Because, like, yeah, I mean, these are, I think some episodes that show the series at its best and I yeah. 
I mean, even if these are the only two stories that we get on TV from him, then that's like... Yeah. They're absolute, like, belters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does say that he's retired from Doctor Who, but he has said that before. <laughs> and, and I honestly think if, like, if Chris Chibnall phoned him, he would not say no. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Chris Chibnall, I think, would be mad not to phone him. Yeah. But we'll see. Yeah. One thing we've kind of alluded to but not really talked about is the representation of time and history. Mm, mm. And specifically the fact that it's set in the 1980s. Yes. And I think you can guess where I'm going to go with this. Um, Lay on the critique of neoliberalism, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jacob. <laughs> We're ready. Oh, no. Um, so... There's obviously this thing throughout of, of kind of expectation of what the past will be versus the reality. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Pete's not perfect, as you said, all of the way Rose, uh, Jackie portrays him to Rose when she's growing up and things, makes her imagine something very different. There's the there's a line as well at the start where Rose is surprised it's just an all day and then the doctor says the past is just, uh, the past is another country in 1987, just the Isle of Wight, <laughs> which is a good line. And... I think there's a clear attempt in this to try and rupture a rose-tinted or nostalgic view of rose-tinted, a nostalgic <laughs> view of, 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 of the 1980s, particularly through Pete and the fact that Pete's supposed to be this entrepreneur. Mm. So if we're thinking about the 1980s, we're thinking about neoliberalism. What I mean by that is, as David Harvey described it, theory of political and economic practices that proposes that human well-being can best be advanced by liberating individual entrepreneurial freedoms and skills within an institutional framework characterised by strong private property rights, free markets and free trade. The role of the state is to create and preserve an institutional framework appropriate to such practices. So effectively, the state is cut back and it should only be involved in the market when it's I don't know, trying to uphold the rules of the market, so competition, etc. Mm-hmm. And the people who we would most commonly associate with neoliberalism would be in Britain, Margaret Thatcher, who was Prime Minister in the 80s, and Ronald Reagan in the US. And Pete, as an entrepreneur, should be, you know, the kind of, almost like symbol of, uh, of neoliberalism, you know, and the idea that anyone can make it as an entrepreneur if they just try hard enough. But we don't see that. What we see is him struggling, Jackie saying she doesn't know where the next meal's coming from. Mm. And so there's a clear sense that the supposed promise of an entrepreneurial society in the 80s is not coming to fruition at all. And yet there's also a kind of tension in the story where there's an attempt to try and get back to this material reality. But it's also, as you kind of said earlier... It's very much focused on the cultural signifiers of the time as well. You know, so it, it does play on the tropes of Doctor Who at the time. I mean, when you look at the way it's shot, the kind of POV shot with the Reapers, when people get taken and disappear, very similar to survival. Mm. But then, and there's a, but there's also a clear homogenization of time. So the way in which you have the Alexander Graham Bell phone call. Mm, yes, oh, yeah. yes. You have the... The, what what I looked up, song comes on on Pete's radio that Rose says isn't out yet. Apparently it's called Don't Mug Yourself. It's a hip-hop song from 2002. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. I was wondering what that was, yeah. actually. Yeah. And even like the way she talks about 
her dad she says you're a bit of a Dell boy it's again it's the cultural signifier mm. so mm. there's a sense mm, of trying true. to get back to the material reality and yet at the same time the episode is very self-aware that it's constructing that reality from the present mm. and that's where the doctor's comment about it being the Isle of Wight is really interesting because it signifies that we can't get back to the 80s temporally we can only get back to it spatially through the way in which the episode is staged, you know, the way in which it's produced, etc. Mm. And so, yeah, I think there's there's an interesting tension there between between those between those two things, and this it raises this question of how we get back to that time. And I think it all comes together in the form of the Reapers and the way in which the Reapers are spoken about as. Um, the doctor says there's a wound in time, and they're here to sterilize a wound. Mm. Mm. So the villain of the piece, if you like, is as much about us trying to change history and trying to perfect history, you know, Rose trying to save her dad, these kind of nostalgic views of, of, of the 1980s. It's as much about how we think about history as it is about a bunch of dragon-like creatures consuming everyone. Mm. Um, and I think that's a real strength of it. That's really, that really, really interesting. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I'd actually forgotten about the Alexander Graham Bell yeah. phone call bit. Because I really like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I did like the, the song coming on. on the, that's why I was wondering, because I didn't recognise the song, yeah. but like, mm. it's interesting to know what it was. I when have not it was heard released. it before, as you would probably expect. <laughs> Being from the 1980s. <laughs> it's a hip-hop song, um, apparently. But like, I, I, I enjoy, I always enjoy when they use sort of things in a like artifacts in a similarly to what we'll see with the gas mask people actually but artifacts or like um objects in like a in a in a way that renders them creepy and i think that they do mm. that with the phone call in yeah in yeah. this um because it's kind of like a ghostly i mean it's it's a disembodied voice you hear on the phone anyway because mm. you can't see the person but in this case it's literally from what like 100 it'll years be about ago? 100 years yeah um, so it's kind of a ghostly presence, and yeah, I, I mean, similarly, actually, to what we were talking about with ambassadors as well. Um, last mm, episode, yes. the using—I mean, there's ways when they try and use the everyday and make it creepy, and it like completely fails. But I think when it's done well, mm. it can be like the coolest thing. And I—it's—it it, tell—I it, think it says a lot about this about how good this episode is that that's not even like yeah. something that I remembered or brought up until now and I actually really like that touch of the yeah. episode I just there's just so much that and I really like the the whole like take on it that of like the material yeah I can't explain it very well as well as Jacob it was good <laughs> I was I was waffling I don't know I don't know how no, that no, but... made sense I really enjoyed it yeah I think that's gonna have to wrap us up actually for part two of this episode so you can join us next time when we'll be talking about M. Child Dr. Dances Boomtown and Bad Wolf Parting of the Ways and then we will be ranking the episodes of this series. It's going to be a top 10. It's actually, it is a top 10, mm. yeah. <laughs> mm. So, I uh, hope you can join us for that. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye. <laughs>